Hey listeners, and welcome back to episode 13 of Creme de la Crime podcast. Before we jump into it, I want to say a quick thank you for your patience. I know I took last week off, but I am back and I am ready to share more stories with you. So the next state on the list is the state of Illinois for this week. And according to worldpopulationreview.com, Illinois has 317 unsolved disappearances. So once again, it's important to keep in mind this is based on reported cases and it is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Illinois true crime. Before we jump into case one, I want to share a really cool podcast that I've been enjoying with you, and it's called Dark Tales from the Road, hosted by Kayla. You've probably heard her trailer in other podcasts, and everyone across the board will tell you the same thing. She is super sweet, and her voice is very soothing. She has a perfect podcast voice. Her show is also really fun because she gives a lot of background and history on the locations before she shares the stories. And that's not something I've really heard anyone else do, so I really enjoy that part of the show. So I want to go ahead and play her trailer for you right now. Hey listeners, my name is Kayla and I am the creator and host of a new podcast called Dark Tales from the Road. We cover true crime, spooky, creepy, and ghostly stories, and I want to take you state by state and country by country to bring you stories you may not have even heard of before, and also learn some history on the city and the state where it takes place. So join me on the road as we discover dark tales. New episodes are posted every Wednesday. I have an Instagram, Facebook, and a Patreon, all at Dark Tales from the Road. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone has a great day. So once again, that is Kayla with Dark Tales from the Road podcast. Go check her out on any platform you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to head over to Instagram and follow her at Dark Tales from the Road. Before I dive right into the first case, I'm sure you can tell by the graphic of this episode that this first case is about a missing child. I've noticed over time that the episodes that I discuss missing children are the least streamed episodes that I have. And I know that's because it's a missing child. I know that these cases are hard to listen to, hard to understand, but they're even harder to look into and dissect. The fact is, the missing children cases affect me the most. They sometimes take me a long time to get through. But I need everyone to keep in mind that these children have parents and siblings and grandparents and friends that have been looking for them, some of them for decades. 
And even though missing children make me uncomfortable, I have to keep sharing these stories because what if it was my niece or my nephew? These families deserve to have somebody talking about their children no matter how long it's been and no matter what the circumstances of the disappearance are. So I just wanted to give a quick thank you to everyone who tunes in, downloads, and shares this episode because I am absolutely horrified by the story that I'm about to share with you and it needs to be heard. So this first case is about Trisha J. Kellett. Trisha Kellett was born on May 31st, 1973 to Dorothy Joe and Brad Kellett. She grew up in her family's uptown apartment in Chicago, Illinois with her mother and stepfather after her parents had previously gotten divorced. From what I could tell, she had one brother and one half-sister at the time she disappeared. If she had any other siblings or half-siblings, they were not mentioned on public record. On Friday, May 7, 1982, Trisha came home from school and was excited to give her mom a painting that she had made for her for Mother's Day. Which... Just a little note, Mother's Day was that following Sunday on the 9th. Multiple people that knew Trisha said she wasn't the type of kid to sit around and watch television. She was full of life, full of energy, and had trouble sitting still for long periods of time. Her favorite thing to do was go play outside, and it was normal for her to spend hours playing in the neighborhood. Please remember, this is 1982. So even though this puts Trisha at a higher risk for abduction, this was also a normal thing that took place in the 80s. And, I mean, even the 90s, because I'm a 90s baby. People didn't lock their doors, and kids played outside late with other neighborhood kids. It's just what we did. Even though Trisha lived with her mom and stepdad, her and her brother frequently spent weekends at their father's. That was the case for this weekend in particular. Brad was scheduled to come pick up both kids at 4 p.m. after they had gotten home from school. There was a little downtime in between when the kids got home and when Brad would be there. So Trisha, being the active kid that she was, asked her mom if she could go to the neighbors until it was closer to the time for her dad to arrive. At this time, her neighbor had a dog that had just recently delivered a litter of puppies. Ever since the puppies had arrived, The neighbor was never surprised when Trisha showed up on her porch to play with the puppies. Trisha was there and played with the puppies for a little while, but then left the house when she realized it was close to the time for Brad to pick her up. Trisha never made it back to her home. When Brad arrived around four, his son was ready to go, but Trisha wasn't there. He figured she had gotten caught up playing, so he checked with Dorothy Joe, but she hadn't seen her either. After partnering with the neighbors, they searched all the surrounding areas, including the areas Trisha liked to play, like the local playground. Trisha was nowhere to be found. When word spread that Trisha was missing, a couple of neighborhood children came forward and stated that they had seen Trisha walking down the sidewalk having a conversation with an unidentified Caucasian male. 
They said Trisha then proceeded to get into a blue car with this man. According to witnesses, they were seen near the corner of Leland Avenue, and this man reportedly had brown hair and a mustache. He appeared to be in his early 30s, around 6 feet tall and 200 pounds. The blue car was described as a four-door Dodge or Pontiac, most likely the year make 1979, and the car had damage on the right front door. Some people also stated they thought they had seen a second man in the car as well, but no one was able to provide any sort of description of this man. After learning all this information, obviously her mom is freaking out. While neighbors continued the search for Trisha, Dorothy Joe called the police. It was stated that the Chicago Police Department was initially unconcerned, and it took several more phone calls from her mom before they finally sent an officer to the home around 10 p.m. So at this point, when the police decide to show up, Trisha has already been missing for six hours. So I want to share a couple statistics with you because this detail absolutely infuriated me. There was a 2006 study done, and in a WTVR interview, a member of the FBI was quoted saying the following, If a child is going to be killed following an abduction, 75% of them will be killed in the first three hours. An additional 75% of the remaining children will be killed within the first 24 hours. And it continues in a series of 75 percentiles out unto 72 hours. End quote. I'm sharing this with you because I want to reiterate how crucial the first 24 hours is in any case, but especially when it comes to a missing child. So, in my opinion, this was detrimental and dramatically reduced the chances of Trisha being found. The main focus of the investigation was trying to find the blue car and this man. Witnesses had observed that the license plate started with the letters Q and R, so all surrounding law enforcement were instructed to be on the lookout for any car matching this description. Multiple sightings were reported. Some claimed they had seen Trisha with this man going into the Malden Arms Hotel later that night, but police were unable to confirm this sighting. Despite all the information witnesses had given to authorities, they never reported any suspects and the search quickly went cold. Despite following up on every lead, nothing of interest was ever found. I read that Trisha disappeared just two weeks before her ninth birthday. Her parents made multiple public pleas for her safe return and even bought and saved the gifts they had planned for her birthday, hoping she would be found. Her birthday came and went, and still there was no sign of Trisha. Her mom took the disappearance especially hard and years later ended up leaving Chicago altogether. It was stated, though, that she always kept the same phone number just in case Trisha ever called. So even though the investigation remained open, no progress was ever made in this case. 
Trisha's photo was placed on milk cartons in 1985, which did lead to a few sightings being called in, all of which ended up leading nowhere when investigated. There was a $3,000 reward put up for any information leading to the whereabouts of Trisha, but as far as her parents or anyone else knew, police never had any suspects and had no idea what might have happened. Her parents spent the rest of their lives convinced she may be alive and made it their mission to bring her home. This is where the case takes a really crazy turn. Her parents passed away convinced there had been no answers in their daughter's disappearance, but they were wrong. I found an article that was published on February 7, 2018 by NBC Chicago. They took an interest in Trisha's case and filed a request under the Freedom of Information Act to gain access to the full case file. The article stated that once they were able to obtain the police records, they revealed troubling facts the family stated they never knew anything about. It turns out that the day after Trisha disappeared, police had a suspect that they spoke to. This man reportedly spoke openly about Trisha and at one point even offered that maybe he was her killer. This man's name is Marvin Pontarelli. The report stated the auto is registered to Marvin Pontarelli. Reporting officer checked his name and learned that this man has an extensive background, including kidnapping, sexual assault, and rape. End quote. The report went on to state that the officer even took a picture of Marvin and showed it around the neighborhood where many recognized him as the man seen with Trisha. It then states, Marvin Pontarelli came into Area 6 Youth for questioning and agreed to take a polygraph test. The test was administered with a finding of non-cooperative slash guilty, end quote. On May 10th, only three days after Trisha disappeared, witnesses were brought in to view a lineup where three of them positively picked out Marvin. The reports also revealed that the police had spoken to multiple individuals in the surrounding neighborhoods who had troubling pasts regarding children. They also showed that Marvin faced charges the same day as the lineup, but they were related to other incidents. I found out that these charges were actually regarding other children in the neighborhood and are as follows. Contributing to the delinquency of a minor, indecent liberties with a child, child pornography, and various weapon charges. Six months later, another report says those charges were dismissed with no explanation. I read in another article that the victims and families failed to appear in court which is really unfortunate, but it's also understandable. I can understand not wanting to put your child through another traumatic experience, like testifying in court in front of this man. There were also prior reports that stated Marvin was overheard to want a young blonde white girl to be photographed with Larry Fassler while having sex with him for the purpose of blackmail. The information included in this report is apparently heavily redacted 
but NBC was able to get this name confirmed by a private police source. Larry is now deceased and was supposedly a former inmate Marvin met during a stay in a California prison. Marvin was also reported to owe Larry quite a bit of money. A later search of Larry's home turned up an entry in an address book that was dated October 1982. This entry had Trisha's name written on it, as well as Marvin Pontarelli listed underneath it. When questioned about this, he stated he had written the information in his address book after being interviewed about Trisha by other officers. Investigators wrote in the report, He felt that if Pontarelli were a suspect in the case, he would be a likely offender due to his history of violent crime and his propensity for young children to satisfy his sexual habits. End quote. That just makes me absolutely sick. Another year passed until authorities in Arizona contacted Chicago police again. Marvin was being held on other charges, but was immediately questioned about Trisha's disappearance once again. They wrote, quote, He began to cry and state in summary that he believed she is dead and buried on some property in Illinois that his family owns. He believed Larry Fassler was responsible for her death, but then refused to continue with the interview, end quote. Weeks later, reports state that he changed his story again, stating that Larry had taken Trisha to Mexico. He never elaborated on this, but it was noted that the investigator had learned information that revealed Marvin himself had a tendency for traveling to Mexico with underage girls. Marvin was convicted in Arizona on a variety of felony burglary and drug charges. It was said that his pre-sentence report in that case reveals troubling references to Trisha Kellett. The report stated, quote, The defendant made detailed notes describing the physical characteristics of young girls and their school bus arrival times. In reference to Trisha, he stated, Maybe I have a split personality. The one I'm not aware of is the one that killed her. There were also references made in the report indicating that they had taken Trisha for prostitution and trafficking purposes. A search of Marvin's apartment produced 66 pieces of child pornography on which many children appeared, as well as firearms and a wide variety of sexual objects, knives, brass knuckles, tear gas, cattle prods, and handcuffs. The report also stated something very disturbing. Quote, the girls failed to appear in court. Their families subsequently acquired expensive late model automobiles. There were multiple instances of apparent payoffs and tampering with the system. The case was dismissed. End quote. Chicago officers wrote that they believed, quote, the Kellett child's body lies in the foundation of Pontarelli Apartments. The cement was being poured at the time of her disappearance, end quote. And I really hate when they do that. How about we be respectful and instead of saying the Kellett child, her name is Trisha. 
Marvin Pontarelli died in prison in 1994. Chicago police were quoted saying, in hope to provide her family members some level of closure, CPD detectives will review the case to potentially generate and explore new leads. We urge anyone who may have information on Miss Kellett's disappearance to contact Area North Detectives at 312-744-8261 or contact us anonymously by visiting www.cpdtip.com, end quote. Trisha's sister Jill says she hopes the Arizona report causes CPD to fully reopen her sister's case. Maybe they can find that building, and if they do, maybe they can find Trisha. Jill stated, at least we'll have answers and we'll know something and not always be worried. Is she still alive? Is she dead? She can be put to rest that her name hasn't just gone under the radar, under a rug, for the last 35 years. End quote. She said their father died in 2009 without any answers. Quote, he thought he would hear Trisha walking through the house and she wasn't there. If we did bring up her name, you could see it was too painful for him to talk about. He'd just kind of walk away. I just have pictures and stories. And unfortunately, if those pictures and stories weren't around, I wouldn't really know who she was. End quote. Trisha Kellett was last seen near the corner of Leland Avenue close to her home in Chicago, Illinois, on May 7, 1982, when she was eight years old. She was last seen walking down the sidewalk with an unidentified Caucasian male who witnesses stated looked to be in his early 30s, standing at six feet tall and weighing around 200 pounds. She was seen getting into this man's blue four-door 1979 Dodge or Pontiac car with a damaged front passenger door and a license plate beginning with the letters Q and R. Trisha is a Caucasian female with blonde hair and hazel eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was four feet tall and weighed around 70 pounds. She had a space between her upper front teeth and had previously broken her left wrist and fractured her skull. Her case is classified as a non-family abduction. Once again, if you have any information regarding the disappearance of Trisha Kellett, please contact Area North Detectives at 312-744-8261 or the Chicago Police Department at 312 312- Seven four four eight two six six. Okay, before we dive into this next case, it blows my mind how many conflicting official sources can say someone's name the wrong way. An official news source pronounced her name Shanti Brila, which I found out is not correct, I don't believe, because I found another official news source that actually did an interview with her family members, including her aunt and her cousins, 
and they call her Shantae. So I'm obviously going to go with how the family pronounces her name. And in the interview with this official source, they called her Shantae Bryla. So I'm going with Shantae Bryla with how to pronounce her name because this is the only interview that her family was actually involved in. So I'm hoping that that is correct. And if for some reason it is not, and one of you knows the correct pronunciation, please reach out to me directly so that I can correct this. So this next case is about Shantae Nicole Bryla. And all the official websites only label her as Shantae N. Bryla, but I was able to go a little deep and found her dating profile, and she did list her middle name as Nicole, and this profile had her picture on it to confirm that it was the correct person. Shantae Bryla was 43 years old when she went missing on March 15, 2019 in Chicago, Illinois. There's not a lot of information available on Shantae's life, but it is known that at the time she disappeared, she had one young son. From what I've read, I believe her son was 12 years old when she disappeared. If she had any other children, they were not named publicly. A man by the name of Marvin Bailey had moved in with Shantae after he had been released on parole in February of 2019. I read a couple sources, and I believe Marvin was around 34 years old at this time. Shantae's son and Marvin shared the same father, and he has remained unnamed, so Marvin was her son's half-brother. As far as I know, her and the father were not together, so Marvin was not technically her stepson, But I know in situations like this, she probably felt a responsibility to help him out. Like I said, he was living with Shantae in February of 2019, but she ended up asking him to leave after her and Marvin's girlfriend got in a pretty heated argument. No sources ever stated what this argument was over, and I'm not sure why the girlfriend was there. It never stated she was living there too, but I guess it's possible that she was staying there a lot since Marvin was. So Marvin had only been staying there for a couple weeks before Shantae asked him to leave. This guy is just a terrible person all around, and that will become very clear as we go through the story. Now that's pretty much all the background that there is on Shantae's life and on Marvin. So this account is a detailed timeline of her disappearance and the events that took place after she was last seen. So on March 13th, 2019, Shantae spent the night with her aunt and then her aunt dropped her off in front of her apartment the following morning on the 14th around 7.30 a.m. Her aunt even stated that she watched Shantae walk inside her apartment. There are websites that list Shantae's disappearance date for the 14th, but the official State of Illinois Missing Persons website and other official sources say it was the 15th. 
Shantae had a cab driver that regularly gave her rides, and this man picked her up from her apartment to take her to the liquor store the next day on the morning of the 15th. Video footage from the liquor store confirmed she was there, and she was seen purchasing a bottle of alcohol with her own ATM card at 12.25 p.m. That same cab driver then took her back to her apartment and watched her walk inside. This is the last time anyone ever saw Shantae. Later that night, video footage showed Marvin meeting up with an unidentified person at a McDonald's on 79th and Yates. The records never state the gender or identity of this individual, but these two left together at 11.02 p.m., and another video showed Marvin using Shantae's ATM card where he made two withdrawals of $201 each. Just over an hour later, at 12.19 a.m., Marvin was recorded taking an Uber ride from 95th Street to Shantae's apartment. The next time Marvin is seen on camera is at the same McDonald's with the same unidentified person at 11.13 a.m. They then took an Uber together and went to a Walmart close by. Walmart security footage captured them purchasing bungee cords and ties at 11.27 a.m. Lyft records showed that Marvin ordered another ride at 1.45 p.m. from Shantae's apartment. Marvin and his accomplice were carrying a large and heavy blue bin out of her apartment to the lift. The lift driver stated that it took both of them to carry this bin from the apartment and that the bin had to have weighed at least 100 pounds. At 3.53 p.m. the same day, video footage shows the unidentified person enter Marvin's green van in the Walmart parking lot. At 5.04 p.m., they both go inside the Walmart together and are seen on camera using Shantae's ATM card again to withdraw $100 in cash and buy two Red Bulls. They then headed to Home Depot on 87th Street, and at 5.50 p.m., the unidentified person is seen purchasing a dolly. Video cameras then show them go back to the Walmart and purchase more tie-down straps at 6.23 p.m. They were caught on video at 7 p.m. at a mostly vacant apartment complex in Marvin's van. The unidentified person is seen getting out of Marvin's van and walking the empty dolly to the side of the building where the dumpsters were located. Marvin is seen driving away in the van by himself, then he reappears on foot to meet back up with the other individual. They're then seen dragging the dolly with a large, heavy object on it. The video footage is not completely clear but it appeared to be the same size and shape as the original bin they had been seen carrying previously. They're seen on video struggling with the weight of the bin, and another witness who lived in these apartments stated that they saw the dolly in the hallway of the building and also saw both of them standing there together. He asked them what they were doing and stated they left with the bin and the dolly. He also later identified both of them in a picture lineup. So, it sounds to me that this was the first attempt to dump Shantae's body, 
But once they knew this man had seen them, they had to change their plan because the man spoke directly to them, clearly saw them together, and with this Ben and Dolly. So they leave this location, and Marvin isn't seen again until later that night on March 17th at 2.39 a.m. He was seen on video at a Dunkin' Donuts at this time, and he used Shantae's ATM card once again, making two more withdrawals of $202.50 each. He stayed at Dunkin' Donuts until 3.41 a.m., so for just over an hour. The police report stated that the police stopped them at one point around 10 a.m. on a traffic stop where they both fled from the van. The police later caught up with them, and both Marvin and his accomplice were briefly detained but then released. A court document explained, quote, The officers were told the defendant and witness three were on their way to Home Depot to get a chainsaw. This was on body cam video. The defendant and witness three were released without any citations and the green van was not searched, end quote. At this point, remember Shantae has not been reported missing yet. So they had no reason to suspect anything weird because these two were pulled over for a simple traffic stop. But I'm still surprised the police didn't even search this van to see why they ran from it. Because at that point, Shantae's body had to still be in the blue bin inside of the vehicle. Marvin was then captured on video using Shantae's ATM card two more times at 1.06 p.m. at a day's end. At this time, he withdrew $203 and $303. 45 minutes later, he's seen checking into a different motel called the King's Inn. The manager identified Marvin as the person who checked in and also had kept a copy of his driver's license and the receipt. At some point, the person who had been helping Marvin showed up at this motel as well. The manager had told Marvin the elevator was not working and proceeded to watch both of them drag the dolly with the blue bin up three flights of stairs. On March 18th, Marvin is seen on video again at the Days Inn in the gaming area using Shantae's ATM card, this time withdrawing $83. He wasn't even here for an hour before he left. He isn't seen again on camera until the following day on March 19th at 8.35 p.m. And at this time, he's seen walking through the parking lot of an advance auto through an alley towards some dumpsters Then he heads back toward his hotel. The only thing you can see in his possession in the video is his cell phone. So it kind of seemed like he was scoping the area out. Just after 4 a.m. that night, he's seen once again going to this same alley with the blue bin strapped to the dolly. The next camera view shows him heading back to the King's Inn with the empty dolly and no blue bin. Shantae's aunt reported her missing on the morning of March 20th at 9.07 a.m. At 11.30 a.m., so two and a half hours after she was reported missing, the hotel manager knocked on Marvin's room door because he had not checked out yet. 
Most hotel checkouts in America are either 11 a.m. or 12 p.m. And sometimes you can get it extended to 1. So I'm assuming this place had an 11 a.m. checkout if she's knocking on his door at 11.30. She said Marvin opened the door just a crack where she smelled an odor coming from his room. She described it as a strong cleaning smell or air freshener type of fragrance, and she knew it wasn't something the hotel provided because she was the one that ordered all of the hotel supplies. So I'm absolutely disgusted because it's pretty obvious he had just been keeping her body in that room with him, which is probably the smell he was trying to cover up. These two are just absolute monsters. And I can't believe at this point that no one has called the authorities for suspicious behavior because these two have come in contact with so many people while they had that bin in their possession. It's just like we always talk about. If you see something weird, say something. Marvin had an Uber pick him up at 12.36 p.m. from the King's Inn and he isn't seen again until later that night at 9.02 p.m. when he went to a sub and euro shop. He tried to use Shantae's card here once again, but this time it was declined due to insufficient funds, so he had wiped it out. Two days later, on March 22nd, an employee at the Rena Center that shares the alley with the King's Inn took the trash to the regular dumpster and noticed a large blue bin near the dumpster. On the 25th, that same employee took the trash out again and noticed the dumpster that was only for cardboard was unchained. And if you've never worked in a processing center or a warehouse, a compactor is kept chained and locked due to safety reasons because it's used to completely flatten cardboard. So it can be very dangerous. It being unlocked is a safety hazard that you can get audited and fined for, and it wouldn't have been normal for it to be unchained. So this guy said he looked inside the compactor and noticed a large black bag upside down that was visibly weighing down all the cardboard boxes. Nine days passed after Marvin dumped that blue bin in the alley, and on March 19th, the police recovered the bin that was still sitting in the alley. So on April 8th, Marvin's green van was also recovered and processed, followed by the hotel room he stayed in being processed the next day on the 9th. Police took DNA samples from Shantae's toothbrush in her apartment and further testing positively matched the DNA found inside the large blue bin. Chicago PD brought in a cadaver dog to the alley and the dog hit where the blue bin had been located, indicating human remains had once been there. The dog also hit in Marvin's hotel room and on the large bin itself when it was taken to forensic services. Cell phone tower records show Marvin's phone pinged where the video surveillance captured him within the dates of 314 to 320. So, there's no disputing that this could have been anyone else in the footage. It was Marvin. Chicago Police Crime Lab personnel tested Shantae's apartment, Marvin's green van, 
and his room at the King's Inn with Luminol. And if you don't know what Luminol is, it tests for the presence of blood. The front bedroom, bathroom, the floor outside of the bathroom, and the kitchen floor of Shantae's apartment all tested positive for human blood. A penny on the floor of Marvin's van also tested positive for blood. The bathroom floor, wall, and carpet of Marvin's hotel room tested positive for blood as well. Lyft and Uber records confirmed video and witness statements regarding the rides he had ordered, but the black bag in the dumpster was never recovered. Police searched the landfill in Indiana where that dumpster had been dumped with no results. Marvin was not arrested until November 25, 2019, but at this time, thankfully, he was charged with first-degree murder regarding Shantae. To this day, he has never admitted to any involvement in Shantae's disappearance or murder and has never spoken of what was inside the blue bin. Shantae's body has never been recovered and no one in her family has heard from her since her aunt dropped her off on the morning of the 14th. It was also stated that police recovered her cell phone at her home. There has been no bank or credit card activity since March 15th other than the stolen ATM card that was used by Marvin. So, now that we've gone through the details of the disappearance, I wanted to share a little bit of what I was able to find on Marvin Bailey. It's extremely disturbing that this guy was allowed to walk free with all that I've found out about his past. So, I want to share the list of Marvin's charges and conviction dates in chronological order before Shantae disappeared. The first charge was misdemeanor theft on July 18, 2003, for which he served seven days in jail. Aggravated battery with a deadly weapon and armed robbery on September 28, 2005, and this time he served five years in prison. Misdemeanor domestic battery and criminal damage to property on January 6, 2011, and he only served 364 days in jail for this, which is insane to me because he is a repeat violent offender at this point and just basically keeps getting slaps on the wrist and then released back into society. Then he was charged with aggravated battery with a deadly weapon on April 19th, 2017. During this incident, he had hit his girlfriend with a hammer and then set her on fire. He was only sentenced to eight years for this, but he was released on parole in February of 2019. So he served two years for hitting his girlfriend with a hammer and then lighting her on fire. So after he was released on parole from this charge, this is when he goes to live with Shantae before he murders her. It's hard not to be frustrated at the fact that Shantae's disappearance should have been prevented. This guy has been so incredibly violent over the period of almost two decades 
and somehow was still let back into society. Other than him being charged in November of 2019 and being held without bond, the only other update was his court date that was scheduled for June 24th, 2021. And this was set to take place at the criminal court's building. No other updates are available in this case, and I am assuming that Marvin is still in prison, but I can't find anything related to whether he has been tried yet or not, whether he was convicted or not, or if they are still waiting for trial. So I will continue to follow this case And if I get or find any updates on Shantae or Marvin, I will definitely let you know in a future episode. Shantae Bryla was last seen on March 15, 2019 in Chicago, Illinois, being dropped off by her cab driver at her apartment when she was 43 years old. She is an African-American woman with brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'2 and weighed around 200 pounds. Shantae's ears are pierced and she also suffered from diabetes and high blood pressure. It's believed that she is deceased, but her body has never been found. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Shantae Bryla, please contact the Chicago Police Department at 312-747-5789. Before I end case two, I just want to say that it's very unfortunate that our justice system released such a violent criminal on parole so early and that this resulted in the brutal murder of an innocent woman and mother And as far as an update on her son goes, the last update stated that her aunt currently had custody of her son and was taking care of him. So as far as I know, he is being raised by her immediate family, but they still deserve answers. They deserve to know what happened to Shantae and where she is. And we just, we got to keep sharing her story so that we can bring her home and she can be laid to rest. That is all I have for episode 13. But if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared on a future episode of this show, please reach out to me directly via email podcast 7 at gmail.com or you can head over to Instagram at pod. follow me and direct message me there. But as always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. Mm-hmm.